We're just going to bring them right up and we're going to pray over them. I got it. Hey, buddy. Come on up. Come on up. Yep. Make room for them. Look at this beautiful. Somebody take a picture when all these people get up here. These are great memories. Um, so just come right here. You're going to come with Isaac's name. Isaac Jayla. Yeah. And if you guys could, could you scrunch together all my tall people, get in the back if you could. And we're just going to try to get you all together so we can just pray over you. Anybody else? Is there anybody else here? Yep. We're going to pray over this amazing group of people. Jesus said, suffer that the little kids come to me, the little children. He said that the kingdom belongs to these. Um, and we want to really highlight, we want to highlight God's heart for children. He has a heart for children. Jesus said, let them come to me. The kingdom belongs to them. He could have just pushed them away and continued on his journey and his ministry, but he made time. He made time. And I just envisioned Jesus sitting on a mountainside and taking a child and just putting him on his knee and just praying over him. I see that in my head. I see Jesus being passionate about the youth. So I want to ask uh, one of our faithful leaders, Liv, to, or Liz, to lead us in a time of prayer. And uh, she is going to pray a blessing over, over our young people, over our children, over their parents, over us as a community to care and to love for them. Father God, we come before you um, as the, the God of this place um, and the creator of each and every one of these kids um, that stand here, God. We thank you that um, before the foundations of the earth, God, you knew them. You had a plan and a purpose for their life, God, that none of them are here by coincidence. Um, none of them are here just because none of them are here are a mistake, God. Um, I just pray for that truth um, to saturate their heart. God, that you designed them, you created them, you called them into existence, God, because you love them and you desire a relationship with them. God, I thank you for, for each of the kids here, um, for the ones that I know, for the ones that I don't know, um, for the ones that know you, for the ones that, that don't know you, God. Um, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, God. God, we pray against um, the lies of the enemy and the culture um, that their life is about them, is about making them happy, is about getting what they want, is about how they look or how much they're liked or what their reputation is or how popular they are or how funny they are or how well they're loved by their family or how significant they feel or how smart they are. God, we pray against all of those lies that that is where their identity lies, that that's where their worth lies. God, I pray that they would be dissatisfied with all of those idols, with all of those things that they are pursuing. God, I pray that they would feel those things, let them down, that that would draw them to pursue you, pursue you as their first love, God. That they would find the joy and the fulfillment that only comes from knowing you. God, I thank you for, for the relationships in this place, God, for the, the cross generational mentorship and discipling that's happening. God, I thank you for um, the people in this place that you have called to invest in these kids, God. Um, God, I thank you for, for mentoring relationships, God, where we can model patience and grace, where we can have a chance to live out our faith when things get rough and where things go beyond the surface, God, that, that we would have the chance to faithfully model Jesus to these kids, God. But God, ultimately, um, we know that, that we are not the Savior, God. We know that ultimately um, they need to come to know you. God, I pray for, for genuine faith, God, not just for, for faith that, that looks good on the outside or that has the right answers when questions are asked. Um, 
God, but they would truly come to know you and that, that those of us walking alongside them would um, welcome their authenticity, God, would welcome their where they're at um, and show them that Jesus wants to meet them where they're at. And God, we um, thank you for all the people in, in this room. God, we thank you for the kids here, um, that you already have a plan and a purpose for their life, that what looks scary and unknown to them as they imagine the future is known to you. God, that you already have... Um, you already have all of the answers, God, that you know um, what they're going to do and what their future holds for them. God, we thank you for the future doctors and nurses and pastors and artists and everyone else represented here. God, we, we pray that you would just allow them to, to first come to know you and find the, the security and satisfaction in you and that you would help them to live out their purpose, to find out why they're here, God. God, we, we thank you for the chance to know them and pray um, as we go into Children's Church and into the service, God, that um, that they would just be drawn to know you in a real way. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Can we give it up to the Lord Jesus? Hey, kids, you can make your way right back to Ambria and Julia. They're waving right back there. You guys can make your way back there. We're going to release you now. Thank you so much. You can go right down. Let's continue to pray for our young people, our our youth. It's just a powerful picture of the gospel and we just want to, we want to learn from them too as well. I mean, we have to take the very posture of a child to trust the Father in heaven. So we want to continue to pray over them. Okay, at this point, I'm going to have the ushers come forward. Ushers, would you make your way forward? We are going to ask the Lord to bless our time of giving now. If you're visiting, please don't feel obligated to give. This is a time for those who have made their uh, new life, Humble Park, uh, their place of worship. They're committed and uh, they're serving here. They're serving with their whole self, and part of that is giving. So we just pray a blessing on this time. Father in heaven, we thank you and pray that you would continue to help us to be mindful of the scope of the mission for us. God, we are asking that you would continue to increase, increase your kingdom. Help us to understand the value and the worth and the power of your kingdom, God, and how it is spreading virally throughout the city of Chicago and beyond. God, we want to be a part of it. We thank you for inviting us to give to it through our financial means. We ask that you would empower us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, God bless you guys as you give. One last Final announcement before we rise up to meet and greet one another. We are going to uh, be uh, doing something very special next month. And I want to invite all the men in the house to be a part of what's going to be taking place. Uh, on March 13th, it's a Friday, 7 p.m. We are, as a church, as the men of the church, are going to be uh, driving out to Wisconsin uh, to engage, to experience our annual men's encounter retreat. Can somebody clap for that? I'm excited because this is a powerful time for us to gather together, uh, to encourage one another, and to be a part of each other's lives, but also to hear powerful teaching, to make bold steps for Jesus. And uh, I want to invite you, if you're here today and you want more information, you're like, what does it entail? How much is it? When are we coming back? I don't know how much time I get up from work. Your man is Jordan Ryan. I'm going to ask him to stand up. You're going to stand up right now. Give a wave. 
He's going to be leading the charge, so see him today. He'll have more information for you. All right. At this time, we're going to rise up, meet and greet one another, grab some coffee, and come back together in five minutes. Thank you so much. To be a ride means to be fake How many times? 
All right, we're going to make our way back to our seats. Thank you so much for taking the time to greet one another. As you're returning back to your seats, I'm going to ask you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be moving through the third chapter, verses 1 through 11. And I want to invite you right now at this moment, if you could, just... Settle down just a little bit. We want to prepare our hearts, our minds, our souls to hear from the Spirit of the living God. He wants to speak. God in heaven, most gracious, holy, majestic, No comparison. The one who has always existed has no beginning, no end. We come to your powerful throne here this morning asking, asking for you to speak, asking for you to do what we cannot do. We are praying and seeking. And believing for you to transform us by the power of your word. God, we came in here one way. We don't want to leave the same way. But Lord, it's not crafty sermons or eloquence or illustrations that bring about that change. It is the spirit of God and we need him this morning. We are praying, spirit of the living God, 
for you to do what you do best, and that is to go into the deepest parts of our being, the places that you know that you've created, and to shed light. We thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you that we can hide it in our heart, that we may not sin against you. We thank you that it is perfect, flawless. And as we open up the scriptures, there's unfolding of light, God. Would you speak to us this morning, Spirit of the living God? We need you. We ask that you would do something powerful, powerful in this gathering place here today. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. We are going to be looking through these 11 verses in chapter 3, but before I get into those particular verses, I want to share a quick story with you of my childhood. I was raised in Chaplin, Connecticut. It's about 25 minutes east of Hartford, and as a kid, I fell in love with sports. And I can remember early on, one of my first loves was baseball. Any baseball fans in the house? Come on. How many people are excited about March for uh, the spring season? It's like, yeah, no, like, yeah. How many Cubs fans we got in the house? Socks? Hey! Southsiders, man, they always, man, they bring it, man. Anytime I've been in a place, the so Sox fans always go hard. But uh, I grew up going to this particular field called Garrison Field. It was a Little League field that I would venture to, and uh, my mom signed me up for Little League Baseball, and I can remember my first time playing baseball on this field. And you know what's most memorable for me? My coach, Mr. Savino. As my father would say, he was a good Italiano. He had this passion, this fire, and this intentionality to lead us in a way that was so, so informative, so encouraging, so influential in my life. And I can remember when I received my first assignment, the hot corner, third base. And I found out later this was quite an honor because you had to have a strong enough arm to get it over to first base and you got to be quick on your toes because how many people know some shots come down third base line, right? So my coach, Mr. Savino, would, he would kind of strut up and down the first base sideline and he would look at all his players and he would shout his orders. And I can remember for the first time being led by a man of influence, by a man who had charisma, by a man who knew what he was talking about. See, I didn't grow up with a father. I didn't have older men speaking in my life and coaching me and teaching me. And I can remember when he used to look over at me and say, hey, hey, John, look alive, kid. Look alive. And basically what he was telling me was, get yourself in the game and focus on home plate because there's some shots coming your way. And I learned very quickly that if I was kind of in the sidelines or talking to my, my teammates, it could go very badly for me. One, my coach, Mr. Savino, would say, look alive. Get your hands off your knees, and get in the game. Be ready. 
The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he's saying the very same thing. Look alive. Look alive, because there are shots of culture coming your way, shots of false teaching coming your way, challenges coming your way, and you need to look alive. Be alert. Be ready, because God has made you alive. So walk in a way, walk in a manner, walk in a mentality that shows you have been made alive in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read through this text and I want to make a, a, few, a few notes concerning the, uh, the emphasis of the Apostle Paul. But the big idea here today is simple. It's this. We look alive when we lock in and slay sin. We look alive when we lock in and slay sin. Coach Paul is looking over at the hot corner of Colossae at the church that is there, and he's saying, look alive, brethren. Look alive. Be ready. Be alert. Look alive. Paul says in the first verse, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in Glory. Just to remind you, last week we spoke about in him we live, when we live in him, rooted strengthened, growing, giving thanks. Paul is continuing his same train of thought from that verse and topic. He's saying essentially the reality of the incarnation, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ has come to you at Colossae. It has bore fruit, fruit of transformation, fruit of union with Christ who has brought about the same death Burial, resurrection in your life, in my life. If you have time today, make sure you grab one of the cards that really summarizes that whole sermon from last week. It's at the next step table. But Paul is encouraging to lead a life that reflects that reality. He's essentially saying if you profess that, walk in a way that shows your profession. Lead a life that shows that you are participating in continual spiritual growth. And he's saying you have a part to play in it. This particular passage is carrying that same thrust all through these 11 verses for today. And next week we'll look at another five verses that carry the same type of thrust. I love how the NIV says, it says, set your minds in hearts on heavenly things where Christ is seated. This word set is zeteo in the Greek. The word here means to search for something intently until it is found. There's a striving, a concentrating, a concreting that takes place. This is similar to how my wife looks for me at a social gathering. Not me specifically for who I am, but she looks for me when our kids are acting up and when she finds me, there is this fiery, 
authoritative encouragement. And it simply said, you need to get your kids and get out of here. <laughs> At that time, they're no longer our kids or her kids. They're your kids. <laughs> Take them out of here. And they have been acting up. This is how she looks for me when I can't be found at a party. This is what Paul the Apostle is saying. He's saying, look in such a way that it is the, la- the first, the beginning, the middle, the last thing you are looking for. This is what your life revolves around searching for. Paul is saying we should use an energy, a life that's in us to focus both our hearts and minds on where Jesus is in the heavens, seated at the right hand of the Father. He's saying lock your hearts, lock your minds, set it, set it there. If I was to define these two words, the heart and the mind, it's pretty expansive in the Bible actually, but I would sum it up as this, the heart is the desires of our life. The mind is our thought pattern, what we dwell on, what we think about. Desires, thoughts, thoughts, desires. Take those very capacities that you and I are given by God and lock them into heaven. He's saying, put your heart and your mind, fix it, lock it on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I'll get back to that in just a moment. He says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. If I was to define earthly things according to the New Testament, I would say it's the temporal, the man-made, the people, places, and things that are simply created. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. Paul the Apostle said in Romans 1 that mankind is great at elevating the created things over the created. Actually, they've exchanged the glory of God for the glory of created things and the truth of God for a lie. I was thinking about this for a moment. I said, well, God, what what does the church at New Life Community Church in Humble Park need to hear? How do they need to be encouraged and informed to come away from earthly things. Now, the list you'll see here in just a moment is very grotesque, if I could say. It's those overt sins that we all know are wrong. There's a lot of people here that have been at church for a long time, and maybe you don't struggle with all those things on there. Some of us may be still in that struggle, and that's okay. There's a continuum of faith and maturity in this place. But I thought it was essential for me to say that we often get consumed with earthly things in here, created things that seem to be okay, seem to have some sort of value. And I am susceptible to the same consumption. Let me start by saying social media is one of the biggest ones. This is an earthly created thing, and often when I spend... Hours upon hours on social media, I don't know about you, but I walk away filled with confusion, dullness, and many times hopelessness. Can anybody say amen to that? Fixed on earthly things. This is a mechanism, a machine that's pumping earthly things into our hands, into our hearts, into our minds. And we sit there just being lulled by it. Am I preaching to anybody? 
Have you walked away from social media feeling dull and spiritually empty? Oh, when I, I go on there to read the scriptures. I go on there because my buddies, they post sermons. Amen. I, I, I try to do that too. But the overwhelming majority of posts and things on social media are filled with the world and the world's point of view and the world's convictions. Paul would say, don't fix your heart and your mind there. In a place where there's a splattering of unfiltered worldviews, opinions, thoughts, and images. You and I were never meant to be inundated with that much at one time. Our generation is overly stimulated by technology, gazing at social media all day, and it's not a good idea. When we gaze at pornography, I don't know about you, but when I've looked at pornography, I walk away feeling worthless and invaluable because at the core of pornography is the degradation of the sacred. Both the image of God and sex as it was intended to be. Gazing at porn all day or just for a little bit it's not a good idea. Certainly leaves your soul in a torn up state. Here's one that we all can relate to. When we gaze at ourselves all day, we become self-absorbed, consumed, narcissistic, and full of pride. Or on the opposite, we become over-analytical, critical, and obsessed. Gazing at self all day is not a good idea. When we gaze into the world with all it has to offer, there are a number of results that can take place. Despondency, misplaced hope, or hopelessness altogether. Or if you're raptured up in the flow in the stream of culture, you may have an admiration, an infatuation, and you may draw most of your hope from the world. Neither bring about the vibrant and worldly life that attests to the gospel faith that Paul the Apostle is talking about. When we gaze at the cultures of this world, as good as they may be, art, people, fashion, industry, with all its good, all these things are created. All these things are created and we can easily lose hope of a kingdom culture that is not of this world. Culture, people, art, music, food, industry. Unless these things are submitted to the glory of God and his kingdom, they, be, they are just lesser than. They cannot become primary in our life. Paul the Apostle saying, look up and lock in to the Son of God who's at the right hand of the Father. Set your desires into that throne room. Set your mind into that throne room. When we gaze at Jesus resurrected on the throne and at the right hand of the Father, we are filled, filled with hope, courage, power, trust, excitement, and encouragement. We're filled with awe and worship and humility. 
It's that connected. I love what one blogger said. I don't even know if he came up with this, but he said this. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. I love that because that which you are lying your desires in and your mind and your thought, it's only a matter of time that you become that thing that you are placing your stuff on. You want to experience victory? You want to experience growth, spiritual maturity? You want to experience hope? Don't look to the world. Throw your eyes up to heaven where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father with all power, with all authority, with all dominion, with all promise to be with you, to give you what you need in your time of need, to bring you through every single valley you may be experiencing. Don't look to me. Don't look to me, I'll let you down. Don't look to people, they'll let you down. Yes, God can use them, and he does, but your primary hope, your primary power and strength is at the right hand of the Father. And we have to make a practice setting our hearts and our minds there. And when we do that, we experience great power. When we lock into him enthroned at the right hand of the Father, we understand that he's got it locked down here on earth. Amen. Paul says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You see that? We're protected. We are preserved. We are in the Father's hand. When we look up and see, see Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world, we see that he is enthroned I don't know about you, but that makes me kind of bold, y'all. That makes me want to walk on water. That makes me want to step out of this, these doors and start preaching the gospel. I got Jesus at the right hand of the throne backing me. We're hidden in him. So let's make it, let's make it our our aim, our practice, if we're going to look alive, if we're going to be alive, if we're going to experience life, it's going to come through throwing our eyes on Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you a quick story from the Bible. You can go to that next slide, Jordan. Is it frozen? I was able to go to Israel in January. And who knows what this is? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody who's familiar with this gate in the, the old, in old Jerusalem, in the old temple? Okay, good. So you're going to learn something here today. Well, at least from, from view. Bar none, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is found in Acts 7. Anybody know what's in Acts 7? Come on. The lion. Stephen. A man filled with wisdom and the Holy Spirit called by, by God and the, the apostles to do the work of the ministry. We don't know a lot about Stephen. You know why? Because he didn't live long after he was called. Or we know for at least from the, the pages of Scripture, when we hear about him, it's only a short-term while that he goes on to be with the Lord. It was at this gate that brother Stephen lost his life just after he took the Sanhedrin on, head on, and called them out 
for their atrocities, slaying the Son of God. He says, it was you who laid the Son of God to the cross, you stiff-necked, rebellious people. The scriptures tell us at the end of this chapter that they couldn't even take his teaching, his preaching, after he went through a whole history of them from the Old Testament to this point now, that they plugged their ears and went, la, 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 la. That's what it says. They just rapidly started to sputter things. And then after that, they took and picked up rocks, dragged them to this gate right here, which is now called Stephen's Gate. They dragged them to right where me and my wife are standing. And they hurled rocks at them, one after another, hitting them in the face, hitting them in the head, hitting them in the chest. At that very point in time, he looked up to heaven. I see Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, standing. You see, Jesus, who was sitting, sitting down, he got up to give Stephen a standing ovation. Come on, somebody. I know you're riding with me. Come on. You see, when your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you see him in times even when the stones of life are falling on your head. And you're able to fix your eyes there. It said as he was about to pass on that he prayed for the very people who were persecuting him and stoning him. He said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. And he was taken up to glory. I don't know if that moves you, but that moves me. A man who had a vision of Jesus was able to lose his life because he knew the one who was the true judge. He knew where the power belonged. And Stephen was less concerned about being judged by men and way more concerned about being judged by Jesus. When we fix our eyes on heaven, it allows us to center our desires and our thoughts there. So I want to encourage us, if we want to be victorious, look alive by locking in to Jesus at the right hand of the throne. We will experience the same grace as Stephen. Secondly, we look alive by slaying the flesh. Everybody say, go ahead and slay. Look to your neighbor and say, you better slay. Look to your other neighbor and say, you better slay. Essentially, Paul is saying here, put it to death, the sinful nature, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. This phrase, put it to death, simply means this, kill it and do it now. The Puritan John Owen said this in his treatise, The Mortification of Sin. Either you kill sin or it will be killing you. There's a lot of truth to that. When we are born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, the sinful nature does not go away. 
Thankfully, it is depowered down. It's dethroned by the Spirit of God who comes in and lays claim to our bodies. You and I have to allow the Holy Spirit through intentionality and practice and spiritual disciplines, we have to put to death whatever belongs to the earthly nature. I want you to zoom out just for a moment. I want you to zoom out because it's often we read these texts and we think, well, what do I need to do as a follower of Jesus? How do I need to put to death the sin in my life? Where are the sexual uh, uh, sins in my life or impurity or lust or evil desires and greed? Where do I need to take care of those? And and that's fine. I, I think that we can read the Bible in such a way. But I want to encourage us as a church here today to take on the practice of killing sin specifically in how we lead ourselves as a kingdom-bringing culture. I know what I'm about to say is going to be edgy. I am not saying it for the sake of being edgy. And I know I had one sister say up to me, she says, I shared your sermon videos online, and like a lot of people were saying, why has your pastor got such an attitude? I just, Jesus help me. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be known as the guy who has an attitude. But I got an attitude. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm from Chaplin, Connecticut. I don't even know. You guys are like, where's Chaplin? I thought you were from New York or Boston, bro. That's a... Over and over again, Paul writes about sexual immorality. It's at the top of all of his lists in all of the epistles. Why? Because it was running rampant in his culture. Guys, I, I know there's probably people here that watch the Super Bowl halftime show and were like, oh my goodness. It was just so immoral and so lustful. We have fallen as a culture. America doesn't have the corner on sexual immorality. Let me just remind you of that. The human heart does. And it's for as long as the human heart has been around, It has been sexually immoral. Paul's writing and he's saying this. He's saying, put it to death. You no longer belong to that way of life and that way of living. I'm going to catch flack for this, but I I felt in my time of prayer that the, the Spirit of God was saying, I need to say this, and it's because we have a younger generation here. Do not... Do not compromise on what the Holy Scriptures teach about sexuality. And what am I talking about? Our culture right now is telling you that it is perfectly fine for a woman to have relationships with women, for a man to have relationships with man, because that's love. They're telling you that it's okay to explore sexuality before you're married because you kind of need to know if that person's good. This isn't the culture I'm talking about. This is the church is saying this. The church of Jesus Christ, widespread. Guys, we can't flounder on what the word of God teaches about sexuality. I love, I love, I really do, I love those who confess homosexuality, I love them. I have nothing in my heart against those who 
prefer to be with women if they're a woman or a man with a man or so on and so forth. I have nothing against them. But they're living, they're living a lie. They're living less than. They have, they have sunk their heart desires and their mentality into a worldly system that's been created by the world by sin. At the end of the day, I want to tell I know, I, I get it. I, I know I've struggled sexually. I know what it is to struggle. But Jesus, I'm telling you, seated right hand of the Father. He can transform you. And not that he needs to transform you more than the alcoholic or the drug addict, but he can transform them too. At the end of the day, when we live this life that we live here, guys, when we walk through the city of Chicago, we have to have this conviction in our hearts at the core of our being. We need to know, we need to know that God has a revealed will. It's not gray. It's not. It's black and white here. It's clear. And why? Because he created us. He calls the shot. It's back to that lordship salvation. It's a calling away from the earthly ways. And we have the power of the word of God to hold out into this dark and dying world. Another word that he says here, and I just went on a, a huge tangent, take it for what you will there. A great resource is Jackie Hill's Gay Girl, Good God. Go grab that book. Great, great resource. He also says lust. Interestingly, this world is, word is not referring to sexual perversion or an appetite for that. It's actually a more broader term where he's zooming out and it's, he's saying if you have a strong desire, desire for anything over Jesus Christ enthroned, it's possible to desire something that stands in opposition to the glory of Jesus. Things like wealth, power, recognition, prestige, success, material gain, beauty, influence, creaturely comforts. We must be a church that is living set apart, not fixed on things seen, but fixed on things that are unseen in heaven. And why? Oh, why? Why? What is it worth? Is it because we can enjoy a better life? Is it because that we can, whatever it may be? No, look at the next statement. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God is going to bring wrath to the earth. Church, there is wrath coming for the world. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, probably the, the last verse that is encouraged by the church to be memorized nowadays. And I don't think I've ever heard a message preached on this. I've never heard a message preached on this text. I'm gonna share it with you here today. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Listen, church, listen. Listen to this next line. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory 
of his might. I wept when I read that verse this morning. Do you want to know why? Because I have tons of loved ones who are not obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have tons of friends who aren't professing it. They're not following it. And I'm casually hanging out with them. I'm, ah, I'll take it or leave it. Maybe I'll share Jesus today. Maybe somebody else will. I'll pray for someone else too. The wrath of God is coming. It's coming. And here is the most scariest part. Today. Today could be the day that his wrath is poured out. It could be today. I just went through a list of people that are not connected to the gospel. They'd be separated for eternity. What am I doing with my life? Am I more worried about what they'll say to me when I share Jesus with them? Am I more concerned about a friendship coming to an end or a job being lost or something becoming a little awkward and ornery? Is that what's dictating me not serving or sharing the word of God? Or maybe I'll be labeled, oh, there's that guy who's got an attitude. (laughs) We don't share passionately. It's because we really, really don't believe that. You ask most of the Christians nowadays, especially the younger generation, they have erased hell. They have erased wrath. They have erased justice. They've erased all this because it helps them coexist and cohabitate with everybody. Don't flounder on the word of God. It's right there. And that's just one of many scriptures in the New Testament. I just pulled on the most poignant one. We look alive when we lay sin down. We look alive when we look up and see the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. If you and I were to leave this building here today and my son or your child was running out into the street on Grand Avenue, I would expect you, I would expect myself to say, no, stop, there's incoming traffic, don't go out into the street. And you'd be right to do so. But we don't do that when it comes to eternity. And there is incoming, impending, looming judgment coming to this world. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Paul closes, as they're coming, he closes. He said, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of his 
in the image of its creator. Here there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ in all and is in all. I love the fact that Paul seems to be focusing on spiritual maturity in the lives of these people that has direct connection to speech. I love that. One of the easiest ways we can deaden our spiritual life is through our tongue. The lack thereof or the overemphasizing of whatever it may be. Proverbs says where words are many, sin is not absent. Paul knew this. James knew this as he wrote extensively in chapter 3 about the power of the tongue, life and death. He says, take it off. Take it off. Rid it. The word in the Greek literally is a word that's referring to derobing clothing. It's like, take it off. Don't have anything to do with it. Throw it down. It's not part of your new nature. Get rid of it. But what I've learned in my spiritual journey is this. Often, we kind of give it the double take. Everybody know what the double take is? You know what the double take is, right? At the end of the day, especially fellas, you know where I'm going with this one. You'll kind of take it off and you'll go. Baby, smell this. How's it smell? She's like, oh, no, 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 put that in a hamper. And you're like, no, nah, I think I can get one more day out of this. I need it for tomorrow. Come on, fellas, the double take. Some of y'all like triple, quadruple takes. I'm just saying, man, be reformed, man. Repent for the gospel. <laughs> Paul's saying there's no double takes. There's no double takes with those practices. The lying, the slander, the gossip. Oh, the Christianized sin of gossiping. Oh, it's such a big one. There's no double takes. Take it off. Don't even keep it near. This isn't getting draped over a dresser because you're going to wear it tomorrow. You got to rid yourself of it. Get it out of your camp. Get it out of the room of your heart and throw it to the side. Amen? I want to encourage us here. And I got more, but we got to do the Lord's Supper. I want to say one more thing. One more thing. This is a big one. This might cost flack too. At the end of that text, he says, there's no Jew, no Gentile, no circumcised, no uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, none of these things. Stop, please. And forgive me if this sounds wrong, but stop celebrating certain sinful tendencies and habits that have to do with your culture, bro. Stop doing that. Oh, it's just because I'm Italian, I'm fired up. No, you're ungentle, bro. I'm talking to me. I'm just a passionate guy. No, you're ungentle. You're impatient. Has nothing to do with your Italianoness. But this is constant. I see people celebrating their cultures and the sinful things in their cultures, or maybe even not even the sinful things. They just exalt their culture over the fact that Jesus, Jesus is king. There's none of this that exists. This isn't what you are associated to anymore. I'm all for celebrating culture. I love culture. I do. I'm not thrashing culture here. God uses culture in a mighty way. But only, only at its full capacity 
in full power when it's submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen? Some of us need to call on God and say, God, how can I use my culture of art, my culture of food, my culture of drawing, my culture of business, my culture of finances, my culture of Italian, Puerto Rican, whatever it may be, to exalt the kingdom of God. And at the end of the day, that is my job. Culture is not king. Jesus Christ is king. Amen? Stand with me to your feet in closing. At this time, I'm going to invite Brother Zach to come on up. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. We're going to spend five minutes together or so in closing. This is the altar time. i got a good brother who's going to lead us in this time. Amen. So the Lord's Supper is a gift given to us by Jesus himself. In Matthew, it says that on the night he was betrayed, he was eating with his disciples. Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And so as believers, when we take the Lord's Supper, we do it in remembrance in the abundance of grace that Jesus poured out for us on the cross. And so this morning, like normal, we're going to ask that you come up through the center to receive the elements and then peel off to the side. But we're going to do something a little different. We're going to ask that you group up into groups of two or three that you would pray with one another, that you would confess sin to one another, and that you would speak the word over one another. And then as you feel led as a small group, you would take the Lord's Supper together, and then you would join us in worship. Come forth. Thank you. 
we're going to conclude our service, but if you would, just make your way out quietly. We're going to continue to pray, take the Lord's Supper together. Don't feel like you have to leave, but I just want to release anybody that has to go. Amen.